Welcome to Which Decade is Tops or Pops. This is the final episode of season two before we get to our grand finale. Episode 10. This time, the Magic Randomizer has given us a year suffix of nine and a chart position of six. So we'll be looking at records that are number six in the charts on September the 6th in 1969, 1979, all the way through to 2019. The YouTube playlist for these selections is at tinyurl.com forward slash which decade 210Y. Spotify playlist, it's 210S. Extracts and bonus bits, it's 210E. Nick and Trev are here with me. We're going to crack straight on with. The 60s. This is Marvin Gaye, with Too Busy Thinking About My Baby. Second of seven top ten hits that Marvin Gaye had between 1969 and 1982, peaked at number five. He's had one number one, that was also in 1969, earlier in the year, with I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Five of those top ten hits were solo, two were duets, one with Tammy Terrell, one with Diana Ross. And this is extraordinary, I think. He's actually had more UK top ten hits as a duetist than as a soloist. He's had five with Tammy Terrell, two with Diana Ross, one with Kim West, and that makes eight. As a soloist, he's only had seven. Bit of a surprise there. Oh, and I should also say, in 1972, a pop rock cover of Too Busy Thinking About My Baby by Mardi Gras peaked at number 19. I've given plenty of airtime to the fact that more than any other decade, the nostalgia factor weighs in heavy with the 60s. But generally speaking, it's been a nostalgia about say the hippie aesthetic lots of flower power some of love type vibes bearing in mind all my 60s nostalgia is nostalgia for a time that i didn't even live through and probably didn't exist remotely how it exists in my mind but there it is now this tune does have me feeling nostalgic but it isn't nostalgic for the 60s it doesn't feel like a 60s song it's just an oldie i think it's a classic sound that almost lives outside of an era. It is old, but equally, it doesn't really feel dated. I just sort of feel that it's it's outside of time. Marvin's got some monster tunes. Great Vine, Ain't No Mountain, It Takes Two, Gotta Give It Up. But I do think when we talk about the greats who died too soon, we talk about Kirk Bain, Boland, Elvis, it feels weird that we don't mention Marvin in the same breath. It was a tragic death. I only really slightly hesitate to ask, but it feels like we are well up for talking about the tragic white deaths. Don't get me wrong. Drugs and suicides and car crashes are very, very sad and worthy of remembrance. But Marvin was absolutely prolific. And I just think it's wild that we don't talk about him more. Now, I've done my due diligence here in case Nick doesn't do what I'm absolutely positive Nick will do. I took the time to listen to the steps version of this and they (laughs) put a kind of slow donk on it. And even that's not awful, which I do think goes a long way of showing what a, a really, really good song this is. This isn't my kind of thing. Other tunes by Marvin, I much prefer to this. However, I do just think 
it's a class piece of work. And I do find it very surprising that we don't talk about Marvin more as an artist who died too soon. I mean, I know he got into his 40s, but yes, this is a class piece of work. I have said this before on the podcast. I love a bit of Motown. We talked about the Four Tops, if I were a carpenter, a few episodes ago. I've always loved a bit of Motown. Grew up listening to that in my house. My preferred Motown sound is a little bit more upbeat than this. Four Tops is kind of more my kind of thing than this. But I think this is absolutely beautiful. This is what you kind of call Motown era, Marvin. Stockake and Waterman used to do this. They used to get various people in their stable to re-record their uh, songs and this was obviously originally the temptations and other motown people recorded it along the way and obviously marvin had a hit with it it's from the pen of barrett strong norman whitfield who wrote so many of those incredible motown hits of the era you know things like papa was a rolling stone it was grapevine war you know you could name a million classic motown songs that you'd know that they wrote you could sort of put Marvin Gaye's career in a little bit into there's a Motown era where he was doing the duets and this kind of I don't know it's it's great but you'd call it fairly kind of cookie cutter Motown wouldn't you and then from kind of what's going on later he became a little bit more politicized I suppose and a little bit more interested in the social impact that his work could have and what have you and and here i think just as we kind of exit the 60s we're still in a little bit of smooth easy motown listening marvin i'm surprised he had time to record it he's so busy thinking about his baby can't do anything he can't think about money he's forgotten to go to classes surprised he didn't forget to go to the recording studio to record it he's that busy thinking about his baby um so yes love marvin this is great the steps version is I don't think we can put it in the same league as the Marvin Gaye <laughs> version, I'll be honest, uh, as big as a Steps fan as I am. Again, I love Motown. This is just lovely and absolutely fab. Another astonishing thing about Marvin Gaye, it's funny how some of the biggest old tunes that will work now weren't actually hits then. And the prime example is his version of Ain't No Mountain High Enough with Tammy Terrell. That is the most streamed song on Spotify of the 1960s of all. It's had over one billion streams. Never charted in the UK at the time. Finally, it spent one week at number 80 in 2013. The most popular song of the 60s. Utterly bizarre. Yeah. Just as Marvin's version of I Heard It Through the Grapevine sounds radically different from the original version by Gladys Knight and the Pips, so this one sounds equally different from the original Temptations version. Uh, apart from the lyrics, it has totally different melody, different arrangement, different mood, and in both cases, the Marvin versions totally eclipses the originals, as nice as they are. I was slow to get into Marvin Gaye. I first heard him duetting with Diana Ross on You Are Everything in 1974. And I thought at the age of 12, the song was soppy and absurd. Why was Diana Ross getting so emotionally overwrought about seeing somebody on the street who looked like Marvin Gaye, then calling out his name and realising it was the wrong guy? But then at that age, I thought most overwrought love ballads were ridiculous. Grown adults who couldn't control their emotions. Get a grip. Got to give it up, as great as it is. Passed me by when it was a hit in 1977, as I was too busy thinking about the Sex Pistols. But I was certainly aware of Grapevine being a classic. It always got regular plays as an oldie on the radio. I was aware of the reverence that surrounded it. Fast forward to 1981. 
And by now, I'm aware that Motown's Golden Age was important. I should get to know it a bit better. So I spotted this 20-track budget compilation LP called More Motown Magic Volume 2 on the Music for Pleasure label, selling for the princely sum of £1.15. So I snap it up, and this cheapo compilation turned out to be a total game-changer. It properly kick-started my love for that label. This compilation had two Marvin tracks. It had It Takes Two with Kim Weston, fab, and it had Too Busy Thinking About My Baby, which I actually did recognise from the 1972 version by Mardi Gras. So really, this was my proper introduction to Marvin. Then Sexual Healing came out a year later. Then I eventually caught up with What's Going On and Let's Get It On, both of those albums. I've also got a very handsome four CD box set covers his full recording career is basically one of my all time favorite male singers. I was going to say all time favorite male soul singers. No, male singers right up there for me. This song, it's a breezy, lighthearted delight. It captures some of the giddy silliness about falling head over heels in love, much as Andrew Gold did with Never Let Slip Away a few episodes ago. Like all the best Motown records, and I do agree with Trev, it feels utterly timeless. I cannot imagine anybody not loving it as much as I do. Limerence. Limerence, that word again. It is limerence, isn't it? Yeah. What limerence? Have <laughs> <laughs> we discussed limerence before? Yes, we did discuss limerence. Oh, Trev, maybe you weren't on that results bulletin. Um, we were talking about Never Let the Slips Away, and one of our commenters talked about it encapsulating that feeling of limerence. And limerence is when you have this all-consuming, unrequited, actually quite painful crush on somebody. I know full well what limerence feels like. I'm glad I asked the question, what's limerence? Then? Good stuff. Thank you. I don't think it's unrequited. I think it's the feeling that you get in the very early throes of a romantic relationship. Yeah, you're throwing all your ideals of what love could be. You're projecting them onto that person, really before you've actually got to know who they really are. That's the state that an awful lot of love songs are written about. Shall we progress to... This is Gangsters by The Special, a.k.a. later known as The Specials. It was the first of eight top ten hits that they had between 1979 and 1984. That included two number ones. It was first released independently on May the 4th, 1979. It was re-released with full national distribution in July, entered the top 40 in August, peaked to this position out of number six. It then spent a single week back in the charts in November 2020 at number 12, straight in, straight out. And towards the end of last year, after the death of Lee Singer Terry Hall, it re-emerged and peaked at 42. Gangsters is heavily based around a scar track called Al Capone by Prince Buster. That reached number 18 in 1967. We've talked in previous episodes, I think we talked about it in the last episode, about puppy love, about how the 70s... Lots of the genres just ended up recycling stuff from the 50s, whether it was the doo-wop or the puppy love-esque ballads and the darts and the shawaddy-waddies of this world. So what the specials did was they took a 1964 Scar song and essentially just brought that back. Now, I am, I think, very much the wrong person to talk about this because at the risk of sounding like Alan Partridge, 
I always preferred Fun Boy 3. Fun Boy 3 with the band the specials could have been. <laughs> look, look, I said that that was going to be a ridiculous statement to make, but I don't know. Maybe it's just my age that I was just, I was old enough for Fun Boy 3, but not really old enough for the specials. I have never really uh, been a fan of Scar. I've never liked Madness. Um, I think I'm the only person on the planet probably has never really got to grips with Madness in any meaningful way. So I don't really like this kind of style of thing. I'm sure that when it came along, again, Mike is going to be a better place to give us some context around this because I was five years old. It was probably very exciting. Well, clearly it was very exciting because they had two number one records in fairly quick succession, didn't they? Terry Hall is clearly a genius in all sorts of different ways. Uh, when I saw it, I thought, I must know this. And then I heard it and thought, actually, I do know it. And it actually doesn't deviate that much from the original, certainly not melodically. It's actually pretty faithful. Do I like it? And the answer is, it's okay. It's quite earwormy. And I was humming it around the house the other day. My wife said to me, why are you, why are you humming the specials? You don't even like the specials. And I was like, no, you're right, I don't. But it obviously is quite catchy. I don't really know anything about it, so I'm really ill-placed to comment on its cultural context or impact or anything like that. All I know is that I am not a huge fan of the specials. I did get to interview Neville Staple once, but that was about our lips are sealed by the Fun Boy 3, which, again, is not very exciting, is it? It's like I don't like interviewing Paul McCartney about the Frog Chorus, isn't it, <laughs> in many ways? Uh, but he was very nice, Neville, I will say that. So, yeah. That's about all I have to say, really, not really for me. I'm surprised you said that Our Lips Are Sealed wasn't a very exciting subject to talk about. I think that's the best Fun Boy 3 single. I know it's a cover of a song by the Go-Go's, but it's wonderful. I, I, I love it. I'm just saying that in terms of Neville Staples' contribution to British music, you'd say that Our Lips Are Sealed is quite a long way down, isn't it? <laughs> mm. You're not the only one who hates madness, Nick. My partner, Kevin, loathes and detests madness. Loathes and detests all two-tone for that matter. This is because of a traumatic experience he had seeing Madness live in Leicester de Montfort round about late 79, early 1980. At that point, Kevin had gone to every single act that played Leicester de Montfort, whether he'd heard of them or not, loved live music. But that Madness gig, a lot of trouble kicked off with a bunch of National Front skinheads. And he looked around and he thought, these are not my people. Something has changed. And it put him right off live music from that point onwards. So, yeah, you're not alone. Uh, have I made a mistake there? Is it not Scar? This Is it Two-Tone? Uh, they are almost synonymous. Right. Scar, Two-Tone, EDM, Donk. <laughs> so I like reggae, but freely admit that the uh, sort of every other beat, offbeat, <coughs> kind of renders everything a bit the samey. Even if, like, the very repetitive nature of it is in many ways uh, prototype donk, uh, but a bit slower. But yeah, I do tend to find reggae a bit sort of samey because it's a bit, it's a bit slow, isn't it? And, you know, whereas the two-tone and scar stuff, once it all went into that multicultural melting pot, is definitely more for me. I, I think the reason why is like certain beers work better in certain climates. Spanish cervezas, if that's how you pronounce it. I've never really read out a beer bottle. Cerveza. There, well, there we go. Back to our fantastic pronunciation of anything even remotely Latin. Uh, but those <laughs> beers are great when it's hot, but 
you know, are less good, say, for example, in the bleak midwinter of the UK. And the slow jams of reggae are great when it's tropical. I've, you know, I've been to tropical climates and it's amazing. But in the UK, it's not, it's not as relevant. And the increased energy levels and the good old British pluck and vim and vigour of scar and two-tone, I definitely think are more suited to our climate of misery for 10 months of the year. I guess the special ghost town with its more reggae-based pace would be the equivalent of Porter, which works equally (laughs) well here when it's cold, but also in the Caribbean. Whilst reggae artists definitely had a lot of important things to say and great ways of saying them, a lot of it was aimed squarely at Caribbean culture. Scar and Two-Tone definitely speaks more to me. That's what it was meant to do. Bands like The Specials were, for me, some of the, the first people of colour that I saw doing music who weren't doing, for example, Good Times by Chic. Good Times by Chic is a fine song, but it doesn't really have much of a message or social commentary more than these are the good times. The specials, they were saying something, they had a bit more of a point to make. And I think the specials and acts like them paved the way for people like the Rebel MC. Uh, Rebel MC, a lot of his music was based in the same stuff that the specials were listening to, the earlier two-tone stuff. Then people like the Rebel MC, with their social commentary, led in part to the jungle movement. And whilst, you know, maybe jungle didn't always have a, a lot of a political message. Quite a lot of it still did. You know, rave music, is, it got more and more watered down. But I think that artists like the specials, I think were really musically uh, as important as Marvin. And certainly the Marvin Gaye track that we were talking about earlier, Nick was mentioning that he didn't have much politically to say there. The specials had something to say about that kind of stuff. And I think it's two styles of music, two cultures, two peoples meeting and just making really great music with a message and with plenty of energy and bounce. So much I could say about the specials and two-tone. I could spend an hour talking about the specials and two-tone. So I've cut it down to make it mostly about me. Give the people what they want, Mike. (laughs) No, give people what they want. My unique personal take. You can find all that historical stuff out from many other reptile sources. You'll only hear about me from me. That's why you're here. Possibly. Right. Yeah, this took three months to become a hit. I was cheering it on all the way through those three months because I'd heard John Peel play it on the radio back in May. While I was doing my A-levels, Gangster was like a cult indie tune that some of us knew. And when I returned to school in the autumn to prepare for my Oxbridge entrance exams, which I spectacularly failed, by the way, it had then become a major hit. So it was the bridge between those two phases. It was also the first record I ever danced to in an actual proper nightclub. That actual proper nightclub being Retford Porterhouse, Saturday, October the 20th, 1979, after a gig by the Jags on the floor above. And the dance floor... It was all lit up with those multicoloured squares, in proper Saturday Night Fever style. It was all rather thrilling and a little bit scary because I really didn't know how to dance. There was, of course, a proper two-tone dance style known as skanking, which I was later able to master as it was so simple, even I could do it. I have passed my skanking skills down to a new generation. Last December, 
after Terry Hall died that Friday, I did a kind of mini tribute set to the specials and promoted it. And there were lots of young people on the floor loving what was being played, but not sure how to dance to it. And eventually one of them broke ranks, came up and he said, excuse me, could you show me how you're supposed to dance to this stuff? So I came out behind the decks and I got my skank on and I led the crowd in the skank. Yeah. So that autumn, 1979, my friends and I all became huge fans of the two-tone label. Like every few weeks, another single would drop on this label from another new ska band, Madness, The Selector, The Beat. And this whole new genre suddenly sprang out of nowhere in the space of like two months with mostly multiracial acts, blending old school ska with post-punk energy and a kind of political manifesto, whether it was implicit, just by mere virtue of the fact these were multiracial bands, or in the case of the specials, frequently explicit. The branding of the label was appealing, as was the style of the bands. By Christmas 79, port by hats, tight tonic suits, black and white op-art dresses were everywhere. Instant takeover. Autumn 1979, that was also when I was finally able to start going to gigs on a regular basis. I was 17, I was deemed old enough. So within 18 months, I'd seen all of the Scar and Two-Tone acts. The specials played Nottingham University in 1980 during my first year as a student there. Got that gig. <sighs> Crackled with tension throughout. I later wrote about the gig. I said a lot of people were having a lot of fun, but there was also an air of suppressed violence. You felt the whole thing could have tipped over at any minute, either within the audience or within the band. I was accosted halfway through for this complete nutter in a curly perm and a rather dodgy mauve flying suit who was accusing me of invading his space and threatened to get really nasty. Five minutes later, this same curly haired nutter was up on stage arguing with Terry Hall about his song Rat Race, which was kind of a diss at students. He was like, how dare you come to this university and sing a song about students when we are buying your tickets? And Terry Hall, this guy was intimidating. Terry Hall looked really sheepish and said, no, I don't mean it like that. I, I was a student myself. I'm just trying to say that. Da, 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 da. Weird gig. So... When the specials reformed in 2009, I saw the second day of their first reunion tour in Sheffield. Notable because Terry Hall was having so much fun, he actually cracked a smile. And the whole audience went, oh, 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 look. And he said, I've let you down. I've let myself down and I've let my family down. Then in 2021, in advance of the second reunion tour, I interviewed their late drummer, John Bradbury. Nice guy. Great chat. Great to talk to him. Uh, yeah, I was exactly the right age for Two-Tone when it emerged. So I felt and still feel a strong personal connection with the music. I never joined any musical tribes full on, but I'd say Two-Tone was about as close as it got. But even so, in all this time, I've never given the lyrics of Gangsters a great deal of detailed thought. I knew they referred to a brief period of time when the band were managed by a guy called Bernie Rhodes, who was also managing The Clash. So I understand that reference to Bernie Rhodes at the start of the track. And I suppose that Bernie Rhodes, who was given to some sharp practices, no doubt, was one of the gangsters that the song was talking about. Other than that, I took a more impressionistic view of the lyrics. They felt paranoid and cynical, but they were set against music that felt utterly joyful. 
And I think I was just happy to enjoy that contradiction. Anyhow, it's a lifetime favourite. Never tired of hearing it. Doubt I ever will. It's about an incident in which another band trashed a hotel room and the specials were accused of doing it and had to pay up. Mm. I think it was the damned. And then, yeah, the the specials who were broke at the time had to pay. And their manager, Bernie, they mentioned him in the thing because he forced them to pay up, even though they hadn't done what they were accused of, I think. Interesting. It's not really made that clear in the lyrics that that was the incident that inspired the song. But useful to know that's what it came from. When you think of how politically charged it was for bands to be mixed race and a lot of the political message of these types of bands was very left-leaning i always find it very bizarre that you know there is quite a history of like national front violence at these types of gigs why does that happen it happened in uh holland in the rave scene and the rave scene is really right on and then like nazis would go and you're like why what what why are you here i mean i guess you know far-right music is not a million miles away from scar and two-tone this is it this is why they got the national front element because they were reviving Jamaican ska music that had been enjoyed by skinheads in the UK in the early 70s. And there was a skinhead revival going on as well. That spilled over into punk as well. There was like a third wave movement of punk called Oi, with bands like the Cockney Rejects, uh, Peter and the Test Tube Babies. And skins allied themselves to that end of punk and also to ska. But yeah, totally misreading the message of what they were all about. And the specials were quite quick to say, you are not welcome. Madness, controversially, were a bit more equivocal about it to start with. I mean, I guess that's summed up, isn't it? Because skinhead's not a movement of racists, but there's an awful lot of racists who are skinheads. Yeah. Uh, again, the, the skinhead thing, exactly the paradox with the hardcore scene in Holland. It was shaven-headed gabbers. There's all kinds of crossed over influences and between Gabbers and uh, the Oi scene, particularly and yeah, skinheads. I think front people doing anywhere. How dare they show their faces in public? But what has made front people go, oh, yeah, this is our music. Yeah. What that mixed race band up on stage? They're making music for you, are they? You idiots. Yeah. How can you revere Jamaican artists while at the same time? trying to drive Jamaicans out of the UK. It is the fundamental contradiction in terms. It doesn't speak well to their overall analytical skills. <laughs> right then, let's go to... This is Sowing the Seeds of Love by Tears for Fears, the last of seven top ten hits they had between 1982 and 1989, and it peaked at number five. It was the lead single from the Seeds of Love album. That was their third and last album as a duo. Then, after Kurt Smith left the band in 1991, the other one, Roland Orzabal, he continued Tears for Fears, essentially as a solo project, releasing two more albums, but with less commercial success. The duo then reunited for a new album in 2004 and again for another album last year. They're still performing together and Everybody Wants to Rule the World has been hanging around the lower end of the top 100 since July last year. A heavily reworked version of this song, 
Johnny Panic and the Bible of Dreams also got to number 70 in 1991. Remember in lockdown at the beginning when it felt like that's it, nothing's ever going to return to normal. Maybe not everybody thought that, but I was like, oh, that's it. We might never get back to live music and gigs and things like that. So I decided to make a list of artists who, uh, in the event that things did return, I absolutely had to see live. Almost bucket listy type thing. I didn't laminate the list. I still occasionally add artists to it. But Tears for Fears were one of the first names on the team sheet. I've never seen them. Uh, at that point. Now, this isn't my favourite song by Tears for Fears. It probably wouldn't make the top five, but there is just still no mistaking that when they write a song, it stays written. The word anthemic when it comes to music has kind of changed a little bit in our vernacular, but this is anthemic songwriting. Whichever way you look at it, it's rousing, it's uplifting. I don't think it's overstating it to say this is stirring. The motif for the song is obviously about making the world a better place. But there is a deeper political significance to it that feels pretty relevant to this day. It is absolutely not about literally sowing seeds of love, say in the more tawdry way that Pearl Jam uh, 10cc and the Loving Spoonful were. Um, (laughs) The video isn't quite as classic as, say, Sledgehammer or True Faith, but it's in a similar sort of style and it's perfectly good and very of the time. It's stacks of 80s nostalgia in the video. The lyrical relevance has meant that it's aged very well. I think the sonic production value means that it still sounds really good today. Have I ever got to see them? I'm afraid that I haven't. I had tickets to see them on the recent tour on the back of the album that you mentioned. The album, by the way, I think is really, really good tipping point. But then one of them broke their ribs. So they are still on the list. And so that list is still as relevant to things as this tune is still relevant. And I think this is an absolute banger. I have always loved his fits. It's quite early on when I got a copy of probably songs from the big chair and then immediately went backwards to the hurt. I mean, the hurting is fantastic. You know, you've got Mad World, Pell Shell to change. Like you say, everybody wants to rule the world. Is I don't know why. I asked my daughter today if it had been in something. Why has it been in the top 100 for a year? Was it in a film or whatever? She couldn't think of anything. So it must just be on a lot of playlists and a great song, I think. I've seen Tiz Fist twice, basically 30 years apart. So I saw them in March 1990 on the Seeds of Love tour, Wembley Arena in London. Alita Adams was with them, guested at the gig, just absolutely phenomenal. And then I saw them again in 2019 when they toured with Alison Moyer, who we talked about last week, was the support. I already loved them by the time this came out, but I was properly obsessed with them for a period of probably about a year through 1989, 1990. I actually still like the later stuff that they've done. Trev is absolutely right. The last year's Tipping Point album is really, really good. Um, I'll show you how obsessed I was. Now, I appreciate this is not a visual medium of podcast and stuff, so maybe Mike can take some photos and we'll put them on. But I, I found these today. So at the time I bought, the, there was a load of limited edition picture discs that they released. So this is the same as these like numbered 12 inch singles, mm-hmm. picture discs. So they did one for saying the seeds of love and they did one for advice for the young at heart. And they did one for famous last words. And they did one for woman in chains, which is my absolute favorite. I absolutely love He's that. He's holding them all up listeners in quick succession, like, like flashcards. I am salivating. These are amazing. These are... I mean, these are 35 years old, probably. Yeah, numbered, sowing the seeds of love picture disc. They do look nice. 
I bought a video. They brought out a video of the songs off the album. It's obviously Trevor's right. The Sony Season Love video is quite iconic. So I bought a, like a VCR video of all the videos and stuff. So I was absolutely obsessed. I think the wheels were coming off by this point. The, the reported cost of production for this album was more than a million quid. It was mainly a Roland Orzabal project. I think you can tell by the songwriting in it, which are his. And then, of course, a lot of people at the time just said it's essentially just a Beatles pastiche. It's just I am the walrus 1980s version kind of thing. And I, I take that, but I think it is a lot more than that. It's a very long single. I think the album version is getting on for seven minutes long. It's quite a long single to make the charts. But I don't know what it is about them. They just together write some absolutely incredible stuff. They were fantastic live, Trev. You must go. They were absolutely phenomenal. Have been a long-term fan for years. And yeah, just always loved this song. Always, always loved it. I'm going to upset both of you. <laughs> here it comes. Oh, here we go. God. But only temporarily. Just sit tight. Don't get upset. I'm taking on a journey. My journey <laughs> through Tears for Fears. Right, I didn't pay a great deal of attention to Tears of Fears while they were having hits. Some of them were unavoidable, of course, but I never really clicked with what they were doing other than Pale Shelter in 1983. I like that one a lot. But I remember when the readers of Smash Hits voted Tears for Fears as their most promising new act for 1983, purely on the basis of Mad World. And I thought, I thought oh, God, really? Because Mad World, that didn't much float my boat. Uh, they were another rat who'd been initially championed by John Peel. He was absolutely delighted when they made the chart. So by rights, I should have been much more infused because I was very much down with whatever John Peel was raving about that week. I think basically I still wanted my pop stars to have a bit more personality and wit and showmanship and sparkle and pizzazz. So Tears for Fears didn't really work for me as pop stars. Also, none of my friends were into them either. I just felt they were too ordinary, too po-faced, too doer, plodding, just a little bit dull. I felt like they were earnestly striving to be deep and meaningful, but falling rather short. I do realise now that I drastically underrated them. Their biggest hits, they become proven classics. Time has generally been kinder to Tears for Fears than many of their contemporaries who were more fashionable at the time. But I've still not been inspired to take a deeper dive. I did that run through, through all their hit singles a couple of days ago. I'm afraid my attention kept wandering. The less familiar songs, they just kind of washed over me without making enough of an impact to hold me in place. As for Sowing the Seeds, it was the last of their really unavoidable big hits. And I do remember thinking at the time, oh, that's quite interesting. Well, they've gone for this sort of late Beatlesy sort of psychedelic orchestrated sound. And well, they've not done that before. There were certain records that I would have taped off the top 40 countdowns on Sundays, but never thought about buying. This would have fallen into that category. Nice enough, but not much more than mildly pleasant. Actually, the only Tears for Fears record I ever bought was that 1991 Reedwork version, Johnny Panic and the Bible of Dreams. It had been remixed by a dance act called Fluke. The lyrics had been turned into a rap by someone called Bitty, 
who later had a couple of vocal house hits with degrees of motion. And it was just the sort of down-tempo indie dance that was quite into at that time. Also, Roland Orzabal, he co-wrote and co-produced my actual favourite single of 1990. That was Rhythm of Life by Alita Adams. He co-produced her debut album, Circle of One, which I also loved. He actually played synthesizer on her biggest hit, Get Here. So I marked that down in his favour at the time. Listening to Sowing the Seeds of Love now, I am at a loss to understand why I didn't love it at the time. It's a fantastic piece of work. In my opinion, it is the best thing they've ever done. It's an epic production. Even the seven-inch version is nearly six minutes long. And while the orchestration is certainly grandiose, it's very deftly done. All sorts of little touches along the way to hold your interest. The Hammond organ, the short bursts of Baroque brass, and the vocals strike me as much more urgent and passionate than I'd been led to expect from Tears for Fears. Lyrically, feels bang on the money for 1989. There are sort of veiled references to the open air rave culture that was massive that summer. There were some sort of sardonic suggestions that while the ravers were searching for meaning, they were in danger of blinding themselves to the injustices of the world. There's a direct swipe at Margaret Thatcher. There are references, again, veiled references to the traditions of British folk music. And those Beatles influence, well, I think they helped to link the optimism of the first summer of love in 1967, when all you needed was love, indeed, with the idealism of the second and third summers of love in 88 and 89. There was still anger in the air that year. Margaret Thatcher was becoming increasingly detached from reality, increasingly controversial, not that she'd ever been not controversial. Her days were numbered. But there was also optimism. The Berlin Wall was about to fall. Nelson Mandela was about to be released from prison in a few months' time. There were protests in Tiananmen Square in Beijing that summer. Briefly looked like a serious threat to the Chinese regime. The world in general was in a state of flux. And I think you can feel all of those elements swirling around during the course of this song. And I think that makes it all the more powerful. Am I reading too much into this? No, I think he wrote it in the immediate aftermath of the 1987 general election. Mm. You know, the politician granny with the high ideals. He also takes a swipe at Paul Weller, if you listen to it. Kick out the style, bring back the jam. Yes, direct diss to Paul. Wow. I love the idea of adult-orientated rock stars doing diss tracks, though. Because, like, like, rappers will do it, and they'll do an entire song just about what a knobhead someone else is whereas like these guys are just like and on verse three i think if you listen to line four oh yeah you better watch out for yourself paul weller because i'm coming for you in a quite veiled way i love that do they often sound that passionate vocally because i hadn't picked up on that with the earlier hits i just thought they were glum well they shared the singing didn't they for a start ah, right i think mike you're absolutely right because the, the swipe at paul weller is about selling out isn't it it is about what the jam stood for and what the style council stood for uh, two very different things aren't they and i think that was the point he was making funnily enough the style council it's a bit like alan partridge and wings and you and the fun boy three i truly truly love the early Style Council records in a oh, way that gosh, kind of eclipses my love for the jam. Genuinely, genuinely. If they ever come up, I'll go into it more. 
I could only be as bad as that if at the end of my review of Marvin Gaye, I'd gone, so I listened to the Steps version. <laughs> and they really made this song pop. Like, mm. I, you, you guys suck. Um, I <laughs> One of my favourite things to do with Hannah when we're, uh, and we don't get to do this all right, lot, but we'll have a night of, you know, let's say a, a bottle of wine and we'll watch some YouTube videos, is put on Tears for Fears and watch uh, which vocalist is going to sing which bit because it just gives that extra dynamic the two vocalists because they are two lead vocalists which is yeah it's kind of it's unusual isn't it it's a brilliant dynamic they've got they looked a bit high street on top of the pops i think that was what the problem. i was quite shallow there was the age of you know real style in pop music it looked like they'd gone down to i don't know h&m to get something vaguely trendy ish cna would have been yeah you're right cna i had the great pleasure of interviewing kurt smith once and he was lovely as well so Hey, bragging rights can be shared. I think they've aged fantastically. They both look magnificent now. And bearing in mind, they've got sort of fairly distinctive hairdos and they've worked through the years with that as well. It's now just them, isn't it? The band. I mean, like the artwork and everything, it's just them. Is it session musicians the rest of the time now? I will listen to that album again tomorrow because it's great. They're still on my list. I really passionately hope I get a chance to see them. It is my duty to snap you out of this reverie and bring you sharply into... The 90s! With Martin McCutcheon and I've Got You. This was the second of five top ten hits that she had between 1999 and 2001, and it peaked to this position of number six. It was the follow-up to her only number one, Perfect Moment. Martine McCutcheon was already well-known as an actress. She played the role of Tiffany Fowler in EastEnders between 1994 and 1998, specifically New Year's Eve 1998, when a character was killed off and her demise was watched by 22 million viewers. She later won an Olivier Award in 2002 for a performance of Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady. The following year, she played a major role in the film Love Actually. Her subsequent career has been significantly impacted by chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia and Lyme disease. But she still posts regularly to Instagram and her post show are happily married with an eight year old son. Uh, Tiffany Raymond and later Tiffany Mitchell, I think you'll find. Oh, Tiffany Mitchell. God, you're right. I did used to watch Eastern. She was never a fowler. Never a fowler. She married Grant, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Tiffany Mitchell. Tiffany Mitchell. Gosh. Don't write in. <laughs> so occasionally the stars align, don't they? And well-known celeb gets lucky with well-known big hit, becomes big pop star overnight, which is essentially what happened to Marty McCutcheon with This Is My Perfect Moment a drippy adult ballad, if ever there was one. I've Got You is the entirely forgettable follow-up to that in a what actually ended up becoming quite a short-lived pop career. I think the context for I've Got You is that Natalie Imbruglia had won two Brits in 1999, uh, obviously not long before this came out, and this absolutely reeks of Imbruglia. It's the guitar in it. 
It actually sounds like a lot of other stuff that was around. Robbie Williams had won three Brits this year, and it's actually not a million miles away from something that you would have heard Robbie Williams do at this moment, or Westlife, or Steps even. I think the production on it is quite Stepsy. I got heartbeat vibes from it. It's really middle of the road, maybe radio friendly, but it's so far away from pushing any sort of boundary it's the safest thing that she could possibly have done as a singer. I've read stuff today that was comparing her to Celine Dion and stuff, and you think he absolutely isn't. If two years later this had come out from a pop idol or an X Factor winner or something, you'd have just shrugged your shoulders and gone, yep, that's exactly what we had sort of come to expect. So there's nothing special going on here whatsoever. And she seems nice enough, and I liked her in Love Actually, and obviously she was a big star in EastEnders. And she seems like a really nice person. It's the sort of CD that you will find in every charity shop up and down the land, isn't it? Martin McCutcheon's album. I didn't buy it then and I didn't engage with it then. It's nice enough, this, but God, it's forgettable. I can't say I hate it. It's just so vanilla that if you ask me next week, I'll have forgotten her and it and how it goes and everything else. And now, ladies and gentlemen... More or less the exact same words and the exact same sentiment, just in a slightly different order. Uh, I've I've got a soft spot for Martine. I think she does girl next door to an outstanding level. She always seems really lovely, but, you know, not unattainable. I think she was outrageously good in the films. Uh, well, I say the films, the film that we all could picture her in. I don't watch EastEnders, but I was aware of her in EastEnders and she always seemed really good in that. And recently when she's been talking about a chronic fatigue, she seems like a really nice person, you know, doing what she can do. I don't really think she brought any of that loveliness to her music. I mean, on this one, she's got a decent enough voice but there are a few moments where she overdoes it a little bit on the gravitas. And I really don't think that's her strength. And I don't think she's playing to her strengths. This isn't the girl next door type thing. Nick mentioned Natalie and Brulia. Natalie and Brulia was very much the girl next door type thing and absolutely killed that with the music. Whereas this is trying to have a bit more gloss and as I say, a bit more gravitas to it. And I really don't think it does. Uh, I don't think there's an actual awful lot for it to work with on this song. It's harmless, but it doesn't exactly leap out of the speakers. I think on Perfect Moment, that was similarly light and gentle, but I do think there was something for her to get hold of, and I thought she got hold of it there. On this, it is all a bit forgettable. Uh, And I think that's a shame, because I think Martine's got a personality, and I don't think she was really allowed to show it with her music. This feels like the new it had shift a few units without trying particularly hard. It feels like, oh, yeah, we can knock this out, whatever. You know, try a bit harder. I I like Martine, but, yeah, I don't like this, I'm afraid. You've actually said word for word some of what I was going to say. But before I get to all that, bit of a digression for you. You may wonder where the hell I'm going with this. Sit tight. It'll all make sense in the end. So let's head back to the spring of 1984. I'm living in West Berlin and I'm going out dancing as often as I possibly can. On Saturday nights, I usually end up at the Metropole in Nollendorfplatz, 
absolutely gigantic venue, played high energy. But that doesn't get going till super late. So before I head out to catch the night bus, I'm usually listening to a specialist dance show on one of the Berlin radio stations called Studio 89. Every week on Studio 89, about 25 minutes of the show are given over to something called Paco's Super Mix, which had originally been broadcast at lunchtimes on a New York urban radio station. The tapes were then sent over to Berlin for broadcast over there. Paco Super Mix was a series of mega mixes of the big electro hits of the day, things like Art of Noise, Beatbox, Shannon, Give Me Tonight, a fierce little cut called The Dominatrix Sleeps Tonight, that were chopped up and put back together again using manual tape editing. There's no digital technology that would let you do this. The edits were far too complex to be done using turntables. The results were absolutely staggering. I already knew many of these tunes very well, so I was aware of the vast amount of work that was going into reworking them and overlaying them. Sometimes three tracks would be running at once. There'd be all sorts of other effects layered on top. Nobody else was doing this stuff. This was even before Double D and Steinsky came along with their legendary payoff mix, which was credited with kickstarting the sampling boom that led to Colcart, Mars, Bomb the Bass, S-Express, and so on. Even to this day, Hardly anybody talks about these mixes. Some of them pop up on YouTube from time to time. I've still got four of them. I take them off the radio and eventually I converted them into rather poor quality MP3. Why am I telling you all this? Well, the team behind Paco Super Mix were called the Latin Rascals. And one of their two core members was called Tony Moran. Later in the 1980s, the Latin Rascals moved into official remixing production work. They remixed Duran Duran's Notorious, for example. And in the 90s, Tony Moran continued as a successful house producer, remixer, songwriter. He scored seven number one hits on the Billboard dance charts. With all this in mind... You can imagine my astonishment at discovering that this very same Tony Moran produced, arranged and co-wrote this unmitigated pile of poo for Tiffany out of EastEnders, about which I have nothing further to say other than it is a totally unmemorable piece of production line hack work, competently but blandly sung in a way that might have worked in musical theatre but lacked sufficient character to cut it as a solo pop performance and actually the least memorable of all the Martine McCutcheon's hit singles, which is saying something. Sorry, Martine. Yeah, you do seem lovely. I think a solo pop career was not the best idea and this was not your finest hour. That was an enjoyable trip around the houses. <laughs> Martine McCutcheon. The hip-hop connection. I, I mean, yeah, that does seem insane. Uh, it... A gig's a gig. A gig's a gig. It all happened also with a brilliant electro act called the Johnson Crew. They had tracks like Pack Jam, uh, Space is the Place, Space Cowboy. They ended up as the masterminds behind all of New Kids on the Block's hits. So you go where the gig is, don't you? It can't be street forever. Well, it's like Andy McCluskey's behind Atomic Kitten, isn't he? Yeah. Um, would you like the people from EastEnders who have had top 40 hits? Oh, I think I'll know most of these. Go on. Should we go on a slight detour with that? Now, I've not included the people who had the top 40 hits before they were in EastEnders. So, like... Um, Wendy Richards, come outside. <laughs> Wendy Richard, Martin <laughs> Kemp, Lee Ryan out of blue, and Samantha Janus. 
So you've got Letitia Dean and Paul Medford, something out of nothing. Oh, God. Terrible. Anita Dobson, obviously. Anita Dobson had a top five hit with the vocal theme from EastEnders, Anyone Can Fall In Love. Oh. Uh, Nick Berry, classic, Every Loser Wins. Michelle Gale. Hattie! I like sweetness. Your sweetness is my weakness. It's my weakness too. Oh. I bought that. I've got that on CD single, Sweetness by Michelle Gale. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sophie Lawrence. Sophie Lawrence was a butcher. Had a hit with Love's Unkind, a cover of the... Is it Donna Summer, I think? Love's Unkind? It is. She worked with a friend of mine on possible follow-ups, none of which saw the light of day. That's my friend who ended up writing Can We Fix It for Bob the Builder and did the orchestral arrangements on the most recent Yes album. He was in the studio with Sophie Lawrence. Something went wrong, I think, contractually, so nothing emerged. Anyway, do carry on. No, no, I believe she was working with Stock Aitken and Waterman as well. Anyway, Sid Irwin. Oh, God, yeah. Ricky! Ricky! Had a hit with Good Thing Going in 2000. Um, Sean Maguire. Oh, yeah. Do you remember Sean Maguire? We was troubled. Very troubled in the show, wasn't he? Yeah. He had eight top 40 hits, none of which reached the top 10, which is quite hard to do, I think. Gotta love a trier. I certainly bought Don't Pull Your Love, his single from 1996, I Do Own. And then you've got Shane Ritchie, who took a cover of Wham's I'm Your Man uh, to the top 10 at some point. But that was all that I could find. It seems that the EastEnders to the charts path ended in the early 2000s it was quite a route but hasn't really done anything since i think you missed one of the charts to eastenders actually patsy kensett because she's on the show now oh she is isn't she yes yeah. another former person we've talked about on this podcast along with it all connects wendy richard but yeah tom watts who played lofty it got to number 67 with his single so i didn't include that so. <laughs> you just did i've mm. seen one of the stars of eastenders performing live at a multi-genre hardcore speed donk glitchcore breakcore gabba techno acid rave bang face can you tell me which character Ooh. from eastenders it was nigel it was not oh barry it was barry from eastenders <laughs> yeah, she was barry Barry, right this what? is what do you do with your career? You've left EastEnders. He was brilliant in uh, Extras with Ricky Gervais. Yeah. Uh, but as, as a man who knows his worth uh, <laughs> and, you know, is getting full mileage out of it, here's the concept for you. And whoever came up with this is a genius. I hope it was him, but he's probably just a manager who went, here's an idea for you. What about this? Barry Oakey. And it is Barry from EastEnders does karaoke and it's an entertainment phenomenon. That is up there with Keith Harrison Orville releasing a rave version of Orville song in which Orville goes, I'm flying. <laughs> Have you heard that one, Trev? Right, Keith and Orville performed at Galactica Rippon that I was at and all of my mates remember it, right? And like some of them insisted that I was in the tent at the time and I'm like, this never happened. Right? Apparently he absolutely did. I was in the tent for the period of time. I don't know what happened. Youthful choices had been made, but I don't know how I missed this. Uh, I was there for when Felix came on, apparently just after, uh, and I was waiting for Felix. So maybe I was there and I was... Uh, and yet not. Yeah. I'm with you. I think we better move on, hadn't we? Here come. The Naughties. The 
This is Kings of Leon with Sex on Fire. It was the first of just three top 10 hits that Kings of Leon have had between 2008 and 2010, and it was their only number one. It entered the charts at number one in September 2008, dropped out the top 40 in May 2009, re-entered the top 40 in September 2009. This particular week, it jumped from 33 back up to six. That was the peak position of its second run left the top 40 again in November 2009. Altogether, it spent 124 weeks in the top 100, and it finally exited for good in January 2013. The follow-up single, You Somebody, peaked at number two. That spent 103 weeks in the top 100. Altogether, Kings of Leon have had 12 top 40 hits between 2003 and 2013. On the album's charts, they've had six consecutive number one albums to date, most recently in March 2021. Those statistics, it seems remarkable that they've only only had three top 10. Yeah, right. Wow. Uh, This is, it's a bit of a paradox, really. In the landscape of the music of Kings of Leon, you could say this is lowbrow crap, really. It was such a dramatic step towards writing a commercial hit that it confused quite a lot of people. And I would imagine it alienated a lot of fans. But if this was by another band who weren't as cool as the Kings, you'd take this as face value, as sort of decent, easy, cheesy pop indie. But whilst Sublur did part life and then got clever, Radiohead were never particularly comfortable with, for example, Creep, even though that's nowhere near as obvious as this is of a band just writing a hit. There are loads of bands that have got the odd outlier that don't seem to fit in with their overall sound and aesthetic. But I think if a band wants to cut their hair and briefly use their music as a bit of a cash cow and have a payday, I have have no problem with this. You can be super worthy. You can record things on acetate that you immediately destroy because it's better to destroy than to create what is meaningless. Or you can ensure your financial stability forever by making something that's a bit obvious and a bit accessible. But at the same time, if it's all a bit obvious, why aren't we all writing these tunes? And then we can take our real highbrow arts and buy one of those town centre venues that sat empty and fill it with really intelligent art. I think we can sneer at this, and a lot of people do, but... It isn't easy to make a hit that is this huge. It's miles away from my favourite song by Kings of Leon. It's a bit much for me. In the world of songs like this, I would rather listen to Mr. Brightside. But we can't all write a song like this. Six beers in, we are all singing this song. Yeah, it's a bit of a tap-in for Kings of Leon. It baffled me at the time, really. But good on them, if I'm honest. Yeah, crack on, do it. They've... Paid for their retirement, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they were on their kind of fourth album at this point. It's not like they came out of nowhere, was it, with an absolute alt-rock banger. You know, they'd had a couple of minor hits, The Bucket and Fans and that sort of thing, and then just turned about the thin blue sky and went straight into number one, which is just such a weird thing to happen to a band that is quite a long way into their career already, with, I suppose at the time, quite a sort of niche following. I think Trev is probably right. Having never really liked the Kings of Leon, I'm only speculating that a lot of the fans who would like the Kings of Leon up to this point just heard this and thought, what the bloody hell is this? Maybe more people came in through the door than went out through the back door because they didn't like the commercial nature. Well, I presume that's exactly what happened. Um, 
again, it's one of those songs. It's Don't Stop Believing. It's Mr. Brightside. It's a song that everybody of a certain age will know. You know, there's that old joke, do you smoke after sex? I don't know. I've never looked. It always reminds me of that when I hear it, which I don't think that was his intention. I mean, it was absolutely phenomenally successful, wasn't it? And like you said, Mike, spent two and a half years in the charts. I don't even know whether I like it. I don't really like the Kings of Leon before or after. I suppose I like it in a sense that I know the words. And like Trev said, I'd sing it if it came on in a pub one evening. But I haven't ever bought it. And I haven't ever voluntarily listened to it. But I don't think you need to, because you won't have to go far in your life before you'll come across it somewhere. So I doubt that it was cynical enough that they thought, I tell you what we need, lads, we need a commercial banger. I know that people have done that. Bruce Springsteen was told to write another record for Born in the USA because they didn't think there was a record on there. And he went away and he wrote Dancing in the Dark, which is a song about being forced to write a record because someone has told you to. And it became his biggest hit, right? So I understand that people must sometimes deliberately, you know, write something that they think is going to be successful. I would like to know whether that was the case here or they just happened upon a formula that worked. But yeah, I mean, no, I think overall, (laughs) really. I was wondering which way this one was going to go, actually. Um, Kings of Leon, they're one of four acts which, rightly or wrongly, I tend to lump together in my head as A, enormously successful stadium-filling rock bands, B, loved by most people I know, and C, of minimal interest to me personally. The other three are Foo Fighters, The Killers, and Muse. Most people I know have been to see at least one of those bands live. I've never seen any of them myself. I've never wanted to see any of them. Granted, all of them have had their moments. Foo Fighters with Everlong, The Killers with Human, Muse with Uprising. But those moments for me are few and far between. And generally speaking, I'm perfectly happy to let them do their incredibly successful thing without having to engage them any further. Of the four of them, Kings of Leon stand out in that, in their very early days, I did rate them and I did buy their records. They were drawing more upon rootsy country rock and Americana influences. There was something a little bit strange and mysterious about them, which appealed to me. That all changed when Sex on Fire and You Somebody came out and refused to go away for about two years to the point where I was totally sick of hearing them. They're Kings of Leon's biggest two anthems, their signature songs, their success propelled the band into the stadium-filling league, at which point they lost most of what had originally made them interesting to me. It has, however, been interesting to discover that Sex on Fire was recorded almost as a throwaway track. It emerged while they were goofing around in the studio and chucking silly placeholder lyrics at the song, which eventually stuck on the final version because they couldn't be improved upon. It doesn't sound to me like they ever intended to this to be a defining anthem. And when I listen to the track now with that in mind... I find myself liking a bit more because I'm not thinking about hordes of lads going, whoa, which hordes of lads, oh, it's a very bad version of the song. Whoa. No, I still can't get it. Hordes of lads most certainly did that at every available opportunity 14 years ago. Instead, 
I'm thinking about three brothers and their cousin having a laugh with a daft little tune, which ended up having a greater impact than they could possibly have imagined. But even so, I'm still basically sick of it. And I never play it out because it still feels too much like a cliche choice. It still feels too soon to revive it. Maybe one day this will change. I don't see it happening anytime soon. I imagine. I mean, I don't know. You know, Nick was saying, were they cynical about it? And, you know, Mike's obviously done a little bit more research, but I bet they questioned whether or not to release this. You know, mm. I bet they were going, whoa, what have we done here? And, you know, there's there's loads of bands that have done, oh, God, what have we done here? What have we created? And then do you put it out there? I thought their first album was outstanding, and I loved their look and the sound mm. and the efforts that they'd made to sound old. And they looked old didn't they? They looked like this band had been around forever and when he was blowing bubbles whilst he was drumming and he just didn't look like he was paying attention and everything about it was, that was great stuff and they were exciting Uh, and that um, around the time of the emergence of the White Stripes and Metallica did that some kind of monster album that had a really raw garage band sound to it as well Uh, and yeah it was an interesting thing and then you know a few years later this came out and you're like what the hell? Or if they still play it live if they're comfortable with it, if you've done this to yourself, for me, because you've got to play it, and I'm not, I've not really got time for bands who go, oh, we don't do the big hits. They must have thought, did we do this? Bit of a poison chalice, isn't it? Because Simple Minds had that with um, Don't You Forget About Me. Yeah. Didn't they? they hated it. Human League. Human League didn't want to release Don't You Want Me as a single. They were going, oh, come on. Fourth track off the album. It's a bit bloody obvious, isn't it? We're, we're an experimental art band. Do we have to do this? And they were told, no, you are releasing Don't You Want Me, became their biggest hit. And Phil Oakey said to me, you can't go back after something like that. Everything changes once you've had a number one like that. And it, it kind of scuppered them, really. Kings of Leon have continued, but I, I have no idea what they sound like now. None at all. I've told you the story about going to see The Killers, uh, arena gig six, seven years ago. And the house lights were up because the support had gone off. The house lights were up. The killers walked onto the stage with the house lights up, sang Mr. Brightside, left the stage. The house lights came down and they started the show. (laughs) God, that tells you a lot, doesn't it? I think that's great because there you go. You've had it, but you're not going to spend the entire gig waiting for it. You know, it's not going to be every single time you hear a high pitched sound. Oh, my God, they're going to do it. It's so frustrating when bands don't want to play their chat. I've paid to hear you, the band who've made those songs. Madonna. Madonna has always done that. Here is virtually every track off my new album that's slightly worse than the one before. (laughs) I might do Holiday at the end if you're lucky. Yeah, there's no way to behave. I got the distinct impression that they didn't want to do it, but knew they had to. And that was the solution that they hit upon. But then they've put some thought into coming up with a solution. And that's mm. that shows respect for your fans. Sometimes you see bands and they do a weird version of it. And you know, all right, yeah, fair enough. But I'd rather they did a weird version than no version. Kylie did that for a long time with I Should Be So Lucky. There was she did an Ibiza trance version one time when I saw her. And then she eventually she's reconciled herself to it. Donny Osmond and Puppy Love, another one, refused to play it for years and years and years. Oh, I thought he did a reworked death metal version of it. Nah, <laughs> that's the one version he hasn't done, to my knowledge. I wish I'd done a bit more homework on this strange chart trajectory thing in that it went all the way up. It went almost right out the top 100. And then, well, within a year, it went right back into the top 10. I can think of 
two other examples where that happened. New Order's Blue Monday in 83. Frankie goes to Hollywood's Relax in 84. I think it slightly happened with Harry Styles as it was recently. That dipped down and went right back up. Yeah, that that's an odd. Well, when you were saying about the Tears for Fears track, all I can think of is around the time Six Music were going hard on Tears for Fears. Uh, I do remember something on Six Music about it. Would that be enough to give it a bump into the top 40 these days? When it first re-entered the charts, sort of round about July last year, I thought, oh, right, it's in the charts. Perhaps I ought to play it on a Friday night. God, the reaction I got, people were just overjoyed. There was like this kind of, ah, in the room. It's never happened again, actually. There must be something. Please write in if you know. Come on, let's get to the last one. I can't wait to get to the last one. Let's get on with... I can't live without you. I know I did you wrong. I know I did you wrong. This is Joel Corey with Sorry. It was the first of six top ten hits to date for Joel Corey, including one number one. Beat to this position of number six. It's actually his 13th single. He brought out 12 singles before this. None of them had charted. His current single is 0800 Heaven. That's a collaboration with Nathan Dorr and Ella Henderson. It's still in the top 20 as we speak. And Sorry is a cover of a UK garage track by Monster Boy called Sorry Brackets I Didn't Know. That appeared at 23 in 2000. Uh, you can hear the UK garage influence on this Joel Corey version. I think it's actually not that dissimilar to the original. So we've been talking about going on a deep dive and, you know, you put the best of Florence on and about 20 minutes in, you think, right, I've had enough of this now. I had the exact opposite experience with Joel Corey today, where it was only after about two and a half hours that I realised I'd been listening to Joel Corey all afternoon. And it was so, I don't know, it was so unremarkable that I never thought to turn it off, but neither was it good enough that I found myself singing along to it. I don't know. It was like having ambient noise going on in the garden or bird song or something. <laughs> and I just ended up listening to it for the entire... And my daughter came in at one point. She went, why have we been listening to this, like, Becky Hill shit all afternoon? And I was like, I totally forgot it was on. So I'm actually kind of lost for words as to what to make of this. I can't really explain the impact that it's had. And in principle, it strikes me it's a sort of massively popular, uh, current, overproduced pop music that I should like. I like Stock Aitken and Walkman. I liked Steps. I liked S Club. I like Gareth Gates, as we established. So it's sort of, it's the, same, it's the modern version of that, isn't it? It is just whatever Capital Radio are playing dawn till dusk all day, every day. So clearly I don't hate it, right? Because had I at any point this afternoon thought, oh God, this is awful, I'd have turned it off. That never happened, right? So also, I don't think I could distinguish one song from another if you ask me now. So they must all sound broadly the same, which this sort of Italo dance piano, isn't it? You know, it's house slash tropical house. It's sort of Kygo, Robin Schultz, Jonas Blue. He feels a little bit like our Getter. And I know he's worked with David Getter, but he feels a little bit like our version of 
David Guetta with his Mabels and his Tom Grennans and his Rays and his Becky Hills and his guest vocalists and all this sort of thing. So I don't really know what to say about it. I don't think I enjoyed it. But by the same token, I also didn't turn it off. So I think the conclusion that I've come to is that it must be fine if totally unremarkable and you two will know better than i do whether it works in a pub slash bar environment at one in the morning i imagine that head and heart song works with a crowd but like i say despite being the sort of thing that i think i ought to like i didn't really and it just feels to me like the latest incarnation of motown to stock and waterman to whatever else Westlife and whatever the Swedish people were doing in the 2000s. It just feels like the latest version of that. It's a getter, lost frequencies, Sam felt sort of thing that just went clearly in one ear and out the other. So yeah, what a strange afternoon it was. There's quite a few similarities between how I feel about this and how I feel about sex on fire. I think this is a very well done cover. It does sound quite by the numbers, but that's a relatively hard thing to achieve. And here's what I've written for this. And I actually ended up saying it about Sex on Fire. Plenty of people will sneer at music that is purpose built for town centres and dance floors full of lads in the North Face jumpers. But if it's that easy to do, what they should do is do it themselves and make millions so they can buy one of the empty venues and fill it with really worthy, intelligent art. Because, yeah, this is, you know, like Sex on Fire, a bit of a tap in. But it's good at what it's meant to be doing now what he really does right in this it's a very minor lyrical change but it vastly improves the song so in the original it was okay a little bit whiny for me two-step garage is making a bit of a comeback at the moment but i'd much rather play this version the main reason is because of the lyrical change when apologizing and trying to talk in the original girl into staying with him I mean, wow, how magnanimous is this? He admits it's his fault. And then he says, this is in the original version, I should have known better than to sleep with your best friend. Now, as understatements go, yeah, in many ways, I should have known better than to have sexual intercourse with your best friend. The way he mentions it as well, he's like really disposable. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm really sorry I drank your last can of Coke Zero in the fridge. Uh, I shouldn't have done that. And I'm sorry for leaving that plate in the sink. Oh, and by the way, sorry about sleeping with your best friend. And I'm sorry about recording over that episode of EastEnders that you were meaning to watch. Sorry about all that. Like... It's just ridiculous. And it makes a mockery of the song. I remember at the time going, oh, that song's all right. And then it's just this stupid lyric. I should have known better early than to sleep with your best friend. And Joel Corey changes that lyric to should have known better, should have known you're my best friend, which makes it a bit vaguer, a bit easier to tell it what's, what's gone wrong. And so therefore it just works as a song. It works as a pop record far, far better. It's a much easier dance floor experience. You're not dancing to it going oh, lol should have known better than to sleep with your best friend like oh but hey i'm gareth gates i'm only human she fell onto it what was i to do so yeah it's a well done cover it's made a better pop song than the original that's what you meant to do you're meant to improve a song if you can head and heart improves on this template draws a little bit more from contemporaries like medusa and i think that's the better track but as a floor filling, Saturday night, town centre banger, 
this is what I do for a living is play a lot of tunes like this. And I think it gets it right. It ticks all the boxes for me. Yeah, echoing that. I mean, last time we had Luther and Janet and Trev, you were saying that it was the sound of town centres on Saturday night in the early 90s. Yeah, Joel Corey, exact modern day equivalent, really. It's essentially lightweight, commercial pop dance. I feel it's been the defining town centre on a Saturday night sound for at least the past four years. Although this year it does seem to be finally on the decline. I feel more of the big dance hits have started going for a faster tempo, more overtly 90s inspired feel, drawing on stuff like Robin S. Show Me Love, Robert Miles Children, ATB, 9pm till I come, and so on. The problem I have here, and I've said this before, 2018 and 2019 were the two years where I almost completely zoned out the singles charts. In this particular top 20 from 2019, the only track I already knew is Labrook Grove, AJ Tracy. I don't even recognise the titles of most of the other tunes. I don't even recognise some of the artists. Dominic Fike, Lil Tecker, Mist. Sam Felt. Who are these people? No idea. In my ignorance, and given his continued chart success, I was kind of hoping that Joel Corey was a pioneer of this kind of pop dance. But I've listened to snatches of this entire top 40, as you can easily do if you're on the official charts website. I can see there were already several fairly similar sounding tunes doing as well at the time. I do actually quite like some of his later hits. Yeah, Head and Heart with M&EK, History with Becca Hill, Lionheart with Tom Grennan, current hit, 0800 Heaven. I think that's probably the best one of all, actually. But this one, which I believe broke through because of its prominent placement on Love Island, which made it the most Shazammed track in one day of all time, I think it's every bit as unremarkable as the Martin McCutcheon track. I was intrigued to discover it was a cover of a UK garage track because I loved UK garage at the time. I was hoping to unearth a gem, but yeah, that is worse than the Joel Corey version. I agree. The original has these leaden vocals that I think they kill the track stone dead. There's no funk to them at all. I don't hate the style of music. I'm echoing what Nick says here. I, I do think there's been far too much of it. I'm glad that things are now starting to move on. I think about 95% of this stuff is generic and formulaic, especially those rather pallid, poppy vocals. I've come from a time where dance records had a lot more vocal authority than they do now. And when we're talking about generic and formulaic, it includes this one, absolutely. Sorry, Mr. Corey. Do you not know Three Nights by Dominic Fike? That was nope. massive. Right, okay. No idea. I wonder how much the success of this was down to the fact that it's Joel Corey Sorry, which is really easy to remember and rolls off the tongue. When you're saying about the sound moving on, yeah, the issues that I have with this, and they're not many, is this is a very retro sounding record. It's a cover of an old garage record. The production is very 90s commercial house style, sort of with plonky bass lines, like Living Joy, like Robin S, that type of mm. stuff. And then it's got the early 90s piano over the top, which is on all of the songs that sort of sound like this. And the sound that we're moving on to 
is another 90s retro dance sound. So it's one foot in trance mm. and one foot in actual happy hardcore and donk. So there's the current two Calvin Harris tunes, 140 beats a minute. There's a load of tracks that are pushing 140, some that are going a little bit faster. Patrick Toppins got a chance. It's an absolute banger is Patrick Toppins. He's got a donk on it. So there isn't anything new coming. It's still retro sounding dance music, which I've no problem with. I like 90s dance music and I like stuff that sounds like 90s dance music. But, you know, I'm a little bit wary of going, oh, we've turned a page because, no, we've just found another old page in the book to mine for sounds i think also i was looking at joel Corey's biographical details and you'd normally expect with people like this that they came out of an underground scene and came overground not the case with joel Corey. he came out of being a regular cast member on geordie shore yeah there's now that pathway into fame so it was, oh, yeah, you come from the underground and then people go, you sell out. Whereas, oh, now Joel Corey was reality TV. And there's a different type of producer who were doing it. Jax Jones. He's very, very comfortable with celebrity. Ewan McVicker, who's an incredibly talented underground acid producer and house producer, but he's also really comfortable mocking his tune on Radio One's Breakfast Show and doing comedy phone-ins. And it's just a different way. You know, the superstar DJs of today have changed. Even Harrison Getter still sort of try and have a little bit of credibility. And they've all got different ways of playing it. And yeah, good on them. Maybe for our homework, what we should do is, are there many more songs by artists who where the song rhymes? It'd be like David Getter having a song called Sweater, wouldn't it? Good homework. I maybe would have gone with Just Gets Better by David Getter. But yeah, yeah. I'm wearing a comfy sweater. I've been sat here for about half an hour and I can't think of any artists whose song rhymes with their surname, but there must be. I have a good think about that because something's on the tip of my tongue and it won't quite come to me. Let's have the comments, people. You can do the homework for us because uh, we haven't got time to do homework. We've got to listen to the next Martin McCutcheon. Well, we've got a bit of reprieve because our next full episode will be the grand finale of this season where we have a nice big think about what it all means. Before we get there, we need to do our own voting on this episode. Nick, you first, please. Yes, nothing I hate this week, actually. So actually picking a minus one was quite difficult, but I am going to go for the 90s and Martin McCutcheon. I just, I mean, she seems lovely, but just no. Mezone is going to be sorry from Corrie for the 2010s and also the special, a.k.a., I think. Sorry, it's not really for me. Third place, one point, I go for Sex on Fire. I mean, it's fine, isn't it, I suppose. Second place for two points for Marvin Gaye, a bit of Motown, and, yeah, with me, shiny picture disc of Sowing the Seeds of Love, please, in number one spot. I had difficulty giving the last point because I was torn between Marty McCutcheon and Joel Corey, but I think there's a bit more artistry in the Joel Corey, whereas Marty McCutcheon is pure production line. So Marty McCutcheon gets the minus one. Joel Corey gets into the Met zone. Quite a bit above him in the Met zone, to be fair. I'd put Kings of Leon, Sex on Fire. Top three, in another week, I would have put Tears for Fears number one, I'm sure. It's very unlucky this week to be up against... Special, a.k.a. Marvin Gaye. So Tears of Fears gets the one point. <sighs> I've struggled with Marvin Gaye and the special, a.k.a. I'm going to give the two points to Marvin Gaye and I'm going to give the full three points to the specials. It was very easy to put Martin in last place. I, f- I feel it's unfortunate because you've got to have a last place. 
it's the most unremarkable of the songs for me. Again, nothing against her, uh, but it would that was an easy decision. And the other easy decision was sowing the seeds of love at number one. No problem at all. Relatively easy to go sex on fire at number two. I don't think there's the artistry there of either, say, the specials or Marvin Gaye, but it's an anthem, isn't it? But to go between those three, and I'm going to go in third place, I'm going to say Joel Corey. Because <gasps> it's incredibly harsh for Marvin Gaye and the specials to not be in the top three. But I, this is a strong week. And the reason I'm going Joel Corey is it's Pops. Which decade is Tops for Pops? And I think it's a better pop record. So there. Wow. I'm amazed, but there we are. Yeah. Wow. Just I'm just catching my breath here. Um, right. Clear last position. All three of us gave last place to Martine McCutcheon. So she's last place. Fifth place at the moment with its solitary one point from Trev is Joel Corey. Then we have two ties in third position. That's the Specials and Kings of Leon. Just ahead of them in second position, Marvin Gaye. Comfortably ahead at the moment, seven points is Tears for Fears for the 1980s yet again. Over to you guys. Please do the usuals. Uh, you should know what to do by now. If anyone's listening for the first time, I'll quickly tell you, you can vote via Patreon, patreon.com forward slash which decade tops. That's your paid for tier, which means you support us. And we love you when you do that. But you can also use X, formerly known as Twitter, and Threads on both of those services. We're at Which Decade Tops. You can search for the name of the podcast on Facebook, find us and vote for us that way. And you can email us at whichdecadeistops at gmail.com. Your voting deadline this time, 6pm UK time, Tuesday the 19th of September. We'll be back thereafter with the final results bulletin of this season and the grand finale. Mega think about what it all means. Until then, and it's goodbye from DJ Trev. Block my voice. No. Bye from Nick. Bye-bye. Bye from me. Bye-bye. Which decade is Tops for Pops?